90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, doing pretty good. I'm in the home stretch. Almost done with my summer classes, and I'm going on vacation. Academics don't go on vacation. I, I know. <laughs> they just answer email from somewhere else. That's exactly what I wrote in an email today. <laughs> I said, I guess I'm leaving for vacation. You're like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm going to answer emails looking at the beach instead of out my window. <laughs> That's yep. exactly what I wrote. <laughs> uh, yeah. I almost put that in my away message, too. I'm on vacation. I don't know what that is. Yeah. So I'm real excited. You know, it's interesting because we're generally the busiest in the summer. Uh, yes. We were talking about this before the show because everybody thinks that, well, they don't have anything to do, so we don't either. Mm-hmm. Or nobody else does. So everybody wants everything done. And well, we normally have a rush in the summer, and we have a rush mm, probably Christmas-ish time. Yeah. Right before mm-hmm. Christmas break, everybody wants stuff for the next semester. Right. Um, so we've got two two major rushes a year. And it's just, uh, it's fascinating the gamut of summer attitudes because there are some <laughs> people that are very like, this is when I get all my research work done is these three months. Like I want mm-hmm. intense communication now. Yeah. And then there are some people whose away message says, I'm on vacation, and when I get back, I'm going to delete all the email that came in. So if you need something, (laughs) email again after this date. (laughs) My goodness. I didn't even think about that. Okay, so when I was writing this away message, too, I mean, I said, if it's an emergency, call or text me. And I didn't give my number. Like, what do you think about that statement? Should I even say that? No, because if they have your number, they'll use it anyway. Anyway. Yeah, that's right. Unless they're under I, the age of 25, in which I case. I never set away know. messages. Really? No. I, yeah. I mean, I did when I worked in corporate America religiously. Well, you I have to rarely, do. yeah, I rarely do here, but I just want to, you know, put another arm's length away. So, you know, I'm I'm not taking my microphone. <laughs> Just so you know, I'm going to try to actually not do work. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but you should be back in time to record next week's show, right? Um, I'm not getting back till Saturday, actually, but. All right. So, well, we may have a little bit of a late release <laughs> next week. Yeah, we may. <laughs> yes, we may. Um, so this is a rescheduled COVID trip. And um, my husband said, you're not doing any work or, you know. I mean, it's not like he's going to leave me, but <laughs> I right. think he's pretty fed up with me answering emails. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. I'm sure I'll be talking to you the whole time anyway. And I'm right. sure I'll take my microphone. Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this isn't really work. <laughs> that is true. It is not really work. Unless, you know, you send me one of those math fun papers and then I have to work at that a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, well, we'll get to the fun paper for this That's week. right. So. I get you back. <laughs> I get you yeah. back with my biology fun papers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, so, with this, uh, and with this uh, whole topic right now, because I know you love to wax eloquently about the history of science. 
you know, I mean, not far off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> History of science is more interesting the older you get. Do you find that true? Oh, yeah. I find it true as well. And I think it's really hilariously funny. <laughs> Yeah, like I was even talking to somebody about, you know, man, we should talk to like the, the three or four uh, like fundamental people that wrote some of the pivotal papers in our field uh, while they're still here and, you know, document it somehow. And yeah, uh, I think uh-huh. the history of science is, but, but we're going further back than that. Right. Um, th- this is, uh, this stems as many of my ideas for the show do out of something that I ask in one of my classes on a, on a test. And the essential question is, how do we geology? <laughs> and by that, you don't mean, well, we go into the field and we we look at things. It's a little bit deeper about that. Like, at, okay, we look at things, but how do we interpret them? How do we figure out what it means? What, right. what it tells us about Earth's history? Exactly. So we talk, we, you and I, talk about the tools of geology all the time, right? You know, we're like, you want to take this, you want to take this. Um, but like, how did the thought process behind geology, like what are we fundamentally trying to teach students in school? Because while you have to learn and memorize, you know, the, the jargon that goes along with it, like how are you thinking as a geologist? Um, and that can in in my mind and how I teach it, it gets broken down into like, what are the theories about thinking about geology? And I will say that a lot of this comes from Bill Bryson's book, A Short History of Nearly Everything, because it's so good and so funny. I highly, highly recommend. I know I've talked about it before on here. But he talks about, he loves geology. I mean, he's an author. He's not a geologist. But the way he talks about geology is hilarious and ridiculously informative. Um, And so some of that will come from here. And I want to put a few of his quotes in here because this part is really funny. And I relate a lot of it during class when I'm thinking or when I'm teaching this part. And I know we talk a lot on this show about my class native science and the thoughts behind earth and the stories that get told, but this is more sort of the Western science version about how we geology. Right. And the one thing in history of science type stuff, and especially this part that I find is when you say it, you're like, well, yeah, how else would it be? (laughs) It all seems very simple, very straightforward, and very logical until you remember that somebody had to set that forth to start with right? and look at what came before it. And you say, well, those are absurd theories. And we're getting ready to talk about a couple. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's crazy. But it wasn't then. Uh, And just like in another 20 years, we're going to look back on some of the ideas that we have now about how things work and go, wow. I know. Um, So I love to like say that about science and that falls on two types of people in my classes full of non-scientists, which is people that are just like, yeah, okay. And then there are other groups that are like, what? Because I think they expect to come into a science class and get exact answers and precise dictates. And when we're talking about geology, we all know that's not an exact science. 
as most sciences aren't. You and I had this discussion about engineering last week as well. Um, And I think it blows people's minds that it's not exact. And, you know, there's a lot that still that changes that science is so quickly changing. Oh yeah. So, so let's go back to, you know, what we are, the person that we always do in geology, yep. right. Which is Hutton. So <laughs> we're, we're in the 1700s and James Hutton is thinking about how, how the earth works, how do rocks get where they are? Has it always worked that way? Is it going to work that way in the future? Mm-hmm. And so you know, the Western science history of geology starts here and it mostly is white old guys, obviously, but they're mostly English. Like a lot of modern geology came out of England. And if you're familiar at all with any history of science, geology in particular, the name Hutton might be familiar to you because of Hutton's unconformity which is at Sicker Point in Scotland. And it's this angular unconformity. And it's just like you said, John, he's sitting there thinking, and like, how do you get rocks that are tilted at an angle and then these rocks on top of it that are flat, flatter anyway? How do you get that? Because if you look around you, you're not necessarily seeing rocks move You know, he could see sedimentary layers along the shoreline, but they weren't tilted at an angle. Right. Yeah. So how would that get there? You know, and that's kind of where he started with, hey, maybe something bigger is going on here. Maybe stuff is actually changing. So that's kind of where looking and observing started thinking about processes because that's what Hutton started to do. And so he is described by Bryson. He's like a, a really, um, I mean, he's a really great thinker, obviously he came up with a lot of this stuff and he's a really charismatic person. And I love this so much. And I love to talk about this in science classes. He was a terrible writer. <laughs> Just yes, which communication is really important. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And so he's got all these great ideas, and a lot of them are still in use today. And, you know, he's not the very first person that came with up with this. And, you know, before we go into what happened to his terrible writer, you know, he's still building on other people's ideas too, right? This always goes back. But there are two groups and it's, there's always two groups, right? <laughs> During well, this always, time. Always, at least. <laughs> but generally two uh, almost holy war level groups. Correct. Diametrically opposed forces. <laughs> and so here we have the Neptunist and the Plutonist. <laughs> so Plutonist sort of sounds like Pluton, which is okay. Yeah. Um, Neptunist sounds like something that, yeah, uh, it sounds crazy. Uh, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Neptune, so I'm thinking, given the time period and uh, mythology, this must be something to do with the ocean. Right, exactly. So if you think about England, right, it's a fairly small-ish island. And if you're watching the geology over a lifetime, what's the main force that you're seeing work on the rocks there? Water. Right. Yeah, 
Exactly. It's the ocean. And so Neptunist believed that the great flood of the Bible basically is the thing that shaped the earth. And therefore, any changes that we see in the rocks have to do with the rise and fall of sea level. So high sea levels, you're depositing rocks underneath that. Sea levels go down. You're eroding what's what's been... Um, what's been left high and dry. So that's basically it. So large changes in sea levels are what change the landscape around us. That's kind of what the Neptunists thought. And I mean, we still have leftovers of that thinking in geology today. You know, we've got things called Neptunian dikes and all this. Um, I think and it's then, not totally wrong. No, it isn't totally wrong. Um, the holes in that theory were like, okay, well, what's changing the sea level? This was pre-Agassi, who was the guy that came up with the fact that we have ice ages at all. So glaciers weren't a part of the sea level change. They just said, sometimes it floods, then the water goes away. And so everyone said, where does the water go? And Neptunists go, oh, look over there. And they run away. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's basically it. So that's, that's the big hole in their theories. And so the Plutonists, that's what they attacked them with. And they have an alternative that it's not water, but it's internal forces, basically earthquakes and volcanoes that shape the earth. Also not wrong. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, the water is the reason those volcanoes happen. So and, and, there's and that. <laughs> uh, yes, correct. And how are you going to road stuff with a volcano, right? You got you to gotta talk about what happens there. It's all explosive erosion. <laughs> it's it's my favorite kind of erosion. Um, <laughs> yeah, sure. I missed that day in general geology, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've done 15 episodes about explosive erosion. Um, <laughs> and so these two groups obviously fought for a while, and that's the environment that James Hutton grew up thinking in. Um, because like most scientists of that day, he came from a rich family and he just got to sit around and think, which, oh man, doesn't that sound great? <laughs> <laughs> that's I mean th that's the ideal academic situation right exactly. except then email came along and ruined that that's what I was just gonna say <laughs> all the research and none of the teaching um which is often what retired professors say too so anyway <laughs> those two groups were kind of the predecessors of the ones that I generally talk about in class which are the uniformitarianists and the catastrophists again Neither one wrong. <laughs> right. <laughs> Absolutely correct. And this is a whole like five chapters in Bryson's book. And I love this. This is a quote from him. And he says, geology excited the 19th century in a way no science ever had before or would again. Interesting. And, you know, I, you have to think that's because you're starting to see the need for extracting resources. Right, exactly. So we've talked on this show about um, the Simon Winchester's book, you know, the map that changed the world, and he's written other geology books too, Krakatoa and stuff. Um, and so, yeah, it's around that time period because you're exactly right. Coal, right, is one of the things that drives this, especially in Britain. And so that's when geology starts to pick up. And not just the extraction, but also the popularization of like being a geologist and, and thinking these things. And so Hutton 
popularized, I guess I will say, uniformitarianism. And when we say uniformitarianism, we always, we as geologists always say this means the present is the key to the past. How it happens now is how it's always happened and how it always will happen. Right. Gravity works the same way. Sedimentary mm -hmm. deposition works the same way. Volcanoes work the same way. And generally, that's true. <laughs> except for really long timescales or really short timescales. Right. But all the in-the-middle in timescales are good. You know, those orders of magnitude either end are, are okay. So this is, this is also every geology student that's listening to us. This is always a question that you will get on a sedimentary test, whether it's stratigraphy, sed pet, whatever, there's always the question of when, like what geologic process does not follow the rules of uniformitarianism. So I'll leave that to you to go look up. This is more about the history of these thoughts. Right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so. Can't give away all the test answers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just most of them, which people still haven't figured out inexplicably. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> there, there's only like 320 hours of stuff to listen to exactly if you did that you'd ace the test it's fine <laughs> um so hutton is sitting around the english countryside and it's like yeah look these small changes the everyday working of the tides you know looking at a river the everyday erosion of this area the everyday deposition of this the breaking down of rocks into soil because that was a big question for a long time that plagued Neptunist and Plutonist too was like, where does the dirt come from? And so things like this fall into uniformitarianism. Gradual changes are what shape the earth around us, like shapes the geology, it shapes the landscape, these gradual changes. So while Hutton is the one that popularized this, probably not the first one to think of it. And I know that there were women in here that get passed by who had a lot of thoughts as well, I'm sure. But he couldn't write to save his life. The way he wrote was the most convoluted, jargon-filled weirdness <laughs> ever. And so even though, you know, we attribute all this to him and he, he came up with it, you always need a good friend <laughs> to help clarify what you're saying. And that's what he had in one of his professor friends, um, John Playfair. So if you've done any geology history, Playfair is a name you'll hear a lot. Uh, right after his death, he basically went through and summarized Hutton's thoughts and published them. And that's what gained a lot of traction because he put them into language that everyone could understand. And people were like, oh, yeah, these gradual processes you can look at and so a river's a river whether it's now or whether it was a river 300 million years ago yeah that makes sense yeah so that's where that yeah. went and you know we also would later associate the name charles lyell with this too right and so if you've ever used an academic database you know about the lyell collection and everything so charles lyell was in the 1800s. So after Hutton, he actually, I think he was born the year Hutton died. And he comes along and he writes the principles of geology, which was obviously a big one. And it expanded on lots of Hutton's original thoughts. 
Um, but what's interesting is that Lyle studied under this guy named William Buckland. And he studied at Oxford. William Buckland was a professor there, but he was also a cleric in the Church of England. And so we'll, we'll get to that, his role in this a little bit earlier. But Lyle was one of Buckland's students. And he wrote this Principles of Geology. And it took Hutton's original thoughts, put it even more in a way that people could understand. So basically what Playfair did, but Playfair was a mathematician, actually. He just was translating Hutton, essentially. And Lyell was- Which when a mathematician is required to <laughs> clarify your work. <laughs> exactly. I would, uh, so uh, in this Bill Bryson book, he like recreates some of, he reprints a lot of Hutton's paragraphs and they literally make no sense. It, this is the importance of writing in a curriculum is that you need to learn how to, how to do this. Um, you yeah. can't write academic papers like you speak. Uh, oh boy. I, I don't even think, I think he didn't even speak this way. It's like when he just sat down to write, he tried to sound verbose and weird. Um, and not everybody, you know, has the advantage of having someone that will translate their things for them. So yeah, learn how to write people. But <laughs> so Lyell not only took Hutton's original thoughts on uniformitarianism, but he took that thought that Earth was shaped gradually over really long periods of time by these incremental processes. And he popularized it even more. I think I read there was like 15 printings of the principles of geology during Lyell's lifetime. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It was something ridiculous like that. It's almost as bad as Stuart's calculus. <laughs> Do you have the black one or the brown one or the... <laughs> And right. the, the brown one with the wood grain, is that the one that I need? <laughs> I've got the fourth ed, the, the black with the brown stripe and the violin on the, yep. Mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. I have that one and the wood grain one because when I took out four, they changed the edition and I was like, are you kidding me? <clears throat> yeah. So anyway, <laughs> so Lyell took all this stuff, popularized it, wrote these tons of treatise on this and basically uniformitarianism arose as sort of the way to think about geology. Um, but that's like you said in the beginning, maybe that's not everything, right? He wasn't perfect in his thinking. Uh, his ideas couldn't explain why we had mountains. So basically the, like the large scale movements of the earth, it didn't explain that. Um, by this time, Agassiz was a person who was on the scene and he was walking through Switzerland and looking at these glacial mountains and glacial valleys and saying, Hey, I've seen these landforms in other places that don't have glaciers now. I wonder if they used to have glaciers. So that's what Agassiz said. And he said, I bet there were times when the earth was covered in ice. And he brought forward the idea about ice ages. And Lyell totally poo-pooed him, said it was ridiculous, refused to believe in that, and also refused to believe in extinctions. So, like I said, partially right. <laughs> right. <laughs> So despite his, whatever, 15, 12 printings of the principles of geology in his lifetime, partially right. And this is where we get back to William Buckland. <laughs> Buckland as a figure is so hilarious to me. <laughs> and he's described as being this really eccentric professor, and he was a cleric as well. And so this is my favorite part. This is the couple of sentences I always read out loud to class, is that, Bill Bryson talks about how people went to 
go out and break the rocks. That's what they called rock hounding then, I guess, breaking the rocks. And so (laughs) they would go out in like top hats and tuxedos and stuff, except for William Buckland, who would wear his full academic regalia into the field. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, if only that never would have happened if there were Choya in their field area. Exactly. (laughs) I just love the thought of these fellows. You wear your poofy hat in field camp next year. Uh, My Tam. That's what you call it. Did you know that? I call it poofy hat because I never, I didn't buy regalia for, because I didn't walk for my PhD either. So, nope, I didn't either. And then when I was a professor, they said, you have to go to graduation. We'll buy your whole outfit. And I was like, wow, really? And they said, where'd you graduate? Yep, here. (laughs) That's easy. Here you go. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, That'd be great. Um, I really want to wear it because I think it'd be hysterical. So he was this really eccentric professor and cleric. (laughs) Charles Darwin actually called him a buffoon, which I think is hilarious. Yeah. (laughs) So he was a super controversial, crazy guy. We have these dudes in science today, right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So he came up with lots of really crazy ideas. And because of his eccentricities i guess um he actually came up with a lot of really good ideas that really hold well too i mean he was lyle's professor you know he was a kook but he wasn't completely a kook but he was a huge proponent of catastrophism and clerics obviously really love catastrophism because then they could do science that didn't contradict the bible right so the great flood no problem. It's catastrophic event. Exactly. Mass and extinctions, catastrophic ex- events. Exactly. I mean, so we've had five catastrophic mass extinctions, you know, one of which we lost 96% of life in the oceans at the end of the Permian. Um, we're arguably living through the sixth major mass extinction. And even though, like, the mechanisms of those extinctions have changed throughout the ages, those aren't gradual events. I mean, in terms of geologic time speaking, they're not gradual events. We're talking on the order of thousands to, you know, one million years. That's pretty fast. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So catastrophism back then was more of, no, the majority of the earth isn't shaped by that. It's shaped by volcanoes. It's shaped by giant floods, huge sea level changes mass extinctions for whatever reason. That's what shapes geology. But I mean, catastrophism evolved from just those floods to other events like impacts, right? We know that's true. So, yeah. And basically, they're both right. (laughs) My test question says, describe them both and tell me which one is how we geology. (laughs) You know, and it's it's really interesting to see people take sides, you know, and I say, I don't care what you write, just back up your evidence. And, you know, some students have come up with stuff that I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I never, you know, thought about that being the major one or whatever. But really, both of them are which shape the earth. I mean, I guess you get pedantic and say that, like, uniformitarianism, (sighs) you're 
you have a roughly uniform distribution of <laughs> acute events. Like oh impacts and things like you, you could really stretch it, but yeah, they're both right. They both uh, uniformitarianism works on medium time scales. Catastrophism mm-hmm. works on short time scales, and everything mm-hmm. changes on long time scales, right? Because you can't have a molten planet and expect things to work the same they do now. Ex- that's exactly right. I think this is really interesting how like Lyle studied under Buckland too, and Buckland was this crazy, but he actually came up with a lot of things that we still talk about now. And it's it's funny that in the late 1700s and the 1800s, it's basically exactly how science works now. <laughs> well, and I don't think a lot of people realize, but you do definitely talk about, you know, okay, well, who's your advisor? Oh, uh, I mean, I, I have had the discussion with somebody of, oh, we share a grand advisor. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's your uh, academic pedigree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who yes. did you work with? Who did they work with? Who did that person work with? I've never gone much further back than that. It, yeah, that's true. Um, so we have a student coming up through the program now, and it's, it's really funny. So I got started because I went to a science summer academy when I was in high school, and one of my now colleagues, who I actually co-teach a class with, so a faculty member at OU, was the person that taught me in high school. So he roped me into teaching um, a junior high science academy for him several years ago when I was a PhD student. Now one of those students is in our program. <laughs> and so I say to him, I'm like, look, it's your academic granddaughter. Yep. <laughs> and he says, don't say that to me ever again. Because <laughs> it makes him feel old. But it's super funny because it's absolutely true. Well, and you know that, okay, this person and this person, you know, had these two warring camps, just like. Oh, yeah. uh, Just like we're talking about here. And uh, Mm -hmm. there was a fight between them and their students carried on that fight. And then (laughs) one generation of students flip-flopped between them or, you know, there's all (laughs) kinds of stuff that happens. Oh, it's exactly right. In PMAG, because, I mean, we're a fairly small group of subset of well, we straddle the geology geophysics line, right? Um, <laughs> we joke about... Yes, off of both. <laughs> <laughs> Just had to get that in there, didn't you? Um, yeah. <laughs> so we have a, a hilarious, like, how many degrees of separation from Rob Vanderview are you? Because he's like, you <laughs> know, the one of the main number guys. of paleomagnetism. It, it, exactly. It totally is. And so there will be sessions that we have where we'll say our Vanderview number. And it's super funny because my advisor was Vanderview adjacent, you know, and all this. Yeah. It's, yeah. Basically. So yeah. yeah, it's what we do. And it's funny to think that that's what they did too. <laughs> Yep, everybody fought, and then generally, in the end, we find out that it's somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. Always. Absolutely always. <laughs> so yeah, that's um, that's how we geology, basically. And I think that is very interesting that I'm sure these are like to-the-death camps, right? Huge nerd fights at these meetings. And Bryson actually discusses some of the meetings of the Geological Society of London, which are amazingly hilarious but i imagine at the time they were ridiculously like spiteful and terrifying and hilarious to watch really i've seen a couple of pretty vicious nerd fights and sessions (gasps) at agu and probably the worst was actually at the goldsmith geochemical conference Ooh, really yeah 
No kidding. Hmm. It was vicious. That's I, I've heard of some good ones there, too. Yeah, people get really... I mean, it's not great to get so married to your ideas, I don't think. I'm. It's one no, of the things, as a field geologist, that's one of the things we try to preach 100% is that you need to hold multiple working hypotheses at all times. <laughs> and I, I won't incriminate this person, and I will significantly edit for not having to put an explicit rating on. <laughs> uh, but uh, pretty pretty well-known researcher. And I really appreciated this sentiment uh, during my PhD when I was really head down in a lot of this stuff and stressing out very deeply over some of it. He said, uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, John, they're just rocks. <laughs> and I thought that's a nice, nice bring it back home perspective. <laughs> See, that depresses me too much. And then, then I spiral into an existential crisis of what am I even doing? No, I mean, it's important, but it's also not important enough to have a hard forego everything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I'm going on vacation. Yes. And while you're on vacation, <laughs> the other thing that academics do on vacation other than answer email is catch up on their journals. <laughs> and that brings right. us to everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. <laughs> this one's mine, Daryl. <laughs> yes. Uh, Shannon, I was going to to pull from our list of papers that we've got ready. And Shannon surprised me and said, here's the paper. And then I said, of course, this is the paper. <laughs> I can't say it. <laughs> Um, Oh, I'm going to make you because you picked it. So, (laughs) Getting to the Bottom of Anal Evolution by Anal and Martin Duran. (laughs) In in what journal, Shannon? Zoologisch Grandzeiger. Yes. uh, (laughs) Issue 256. Uh, published in 2015. Um, I did want to say just, it's an Elsevier journal. You should just look it up. (laughs) Um, you know, it's really, that's really the funniest part of the paper (laughs) is just the title, (laughs) but it also has some interesting biology stuff. Right. So it basically says some animals have, different gut and food processing plumbing. Mm-hmm. So some of us have a stomach. Uh, some of us just have tubes. Some uh, of us have a sack. Yep. <laughs> and, but the, the common thing is, you know, there's that kid's book, everybody poops. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it, it, it all ends in poop. And as it turns out, that end of the road has a complex <laughs> evolutionary history. Yeah. Um, I always see and, these and papers. We needed to write a paper about it. Yeah, exactly. So I always see these review papers as like that one last thing you have to do before you get tenure. Like you got to write all your own stuff and then you got to summarize everybody else's stuff. And that's like that last check mark um, <laughs> for lots of institutions. Anyway, you have to so have these, these get reviews. Incredibly 
sided. Oh, oh, absolutely. This is the way to go. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Where, if you want to boost your, your, your H index. H index, exactly. <laughs> it's the way to go. Yeah. I mean, I already, I have my review paper outlined already. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> this is absolutely the way to go. And I'm not going to go through all of this, but I do want to talk about figure one. Because <laughs> this basically, I mean, that's the thing. It breaks down like there are all these different ways of pooping and eating what's the best and like why do we have so many right and i learned some interesting things about stuff so you can have a gut that's a sack right where and this is like a starfish do you know how a starfish eats have you seen this i have not seen a starfish eat no oh well i got your youtube all set up for you for the rest of the evening <laughs> it like extrudes its stomach out this hole and basically sucks the stuff back in like it's stomach acids dissolve things and then it sucks those pieces back in through the same hole fascinating yeah it's amazing (laughs) so you can have that (laughs) you can have this u-shaped gut and when you have a u-shaped gut now see i highly remember this from from um paleontology you didn't have to take paleontology did you i did not because i was a geophysicist right you can't see fossils on seismic uh, yeah. <laughs> so our paleontology is taught by Dr. Stephen Westrup, who's leaving. I'm so sad. He's retiring and he's one of the most outstanding teachers, the, the trilobite person in the world. And I remember him showing this picture, this snail thing, <laughs> and it had a U-shaped gut. And so its mouth is there and its anus is real close to that. And he said, you can't, I mean, he said the words, you can't poop where you eat, (laughs) which lots of people have heard before, right? Yep. But, and you can see on here that that's where like brachiopods did this. Some snail types of snails do this. Um, And some of them do it. And they talk about this in the paper. Some of them do it successfully. And the key is that you have something that separates your butt from your mouth. So you have cilia, which are like those little filament thingies, um, or you have an actual like closing. So your, your anus is never open when you're trying to eat. (laughs) So these are the keys to U-shaped guts. (laughs) (laughs) And then you can have a through gut, which is a evolutionary amazingness because you can be eating and digesting at the same time. Right. So that's good. And then you can have a branched gut, which is weird. <laughs> and exactly what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it goes off in different, different directions. Um, so they outline this. I really, I just love this diagram a lot. Um, so it outlines gut shape. And then you want to outline anus structure because trying to get to the bottom of it. Right. And so this is like, and this was crazy too. Um, you know, do you have this through thing where you got a mouth and an anus? Are your mouth and your anus the same thing? <laughs> Are your mouth and your anus and your reproductive holes the same thing? Yeah. And even scarier, <laughs> this one says, is your respiratory tract also the same? <laughs> Can't breathe while you poop. Ah, so it kind of derms. 
their anus and their respiratory tract are the same plumbing. That was the only one. The only out of one. This whole uh, tree here that they yeah. got listed. And it's like, are they extinct now? Because <sighs> that sounds like it smells really bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's really weird, right? With respiratory tract. Well, and then they also break down the what happens to the larval gut. Like, does it become your adult gut? Does it get discarded? What happens? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I That's mean, really we weird. We keep the same gut, but yes, but other things don't. Um, there's some really good subheadings in here too. I think in this paper in general. I don't know yeah. if you you share that. I'm trying to find a. One of my favorite ones, which has to do with this larval gut business. Um, hold on. It's so transient anuses, new anal openings, and multiple losses. <laughs> All right. So it can move around as you mature. <laughs> and Wake up whole- morning, one morning and go, whoa. <laughs> that tastes different. Um <laughs> And so the whole point is like, how do these things evolve, right? How do you change? How do you go from having your a cloacia, you know, like a chicken or something, into a total through gut, into branched guts, and where is that going? And then it goes into a whole bunch of stuff about genetics that I didn't really care about. But <laughs> well, and you know, we said that there's always two camps in science. Mm-hmm. So here's a mm-hmm. sentence that you probably never thought you would read. <laughs> uh, the origin of the anus has been a subject of historical debate between mainly German zoologists in the 50s and early 60s. <laughs> and we proceed to break down that debate. There's so much to say there that I'm just going to go. We don't have an explicit rating. We're not going to get one now. <laughs> yep. Well. <clears throat> So I hope you enjoyed that. <laughs> so if uh, you want to see what all the poop's about, you can uh, you can get the full scoop by uh, going and grabbing the link out of the show notes to getting to the bottom of anal evolution. Oh, boy. <laughs> Let's turn this off now. <laughs> yes. So, Shannon, uh, normally I challenge folks to see if they can reproduce results from a paper, but... I don't know how I feel about that for this one. Uh, so how about if folks have a non-biology fun paper they would like to send in? Or don't forget, we're coming up on episode 300, and I've only got a couple of audio clips. So send in a little short audio clip. You can just record it with your phone. Don't worry about audio quality, really. Just say hello and uh, tell us who you are and you know either why you listen to the show or what you do or where you listen to the show, something that will be uh, an interesting little factoid. And we'll sprinkle those in, in episode 300. Awesome. And you can send those to us show at don't panic geocast.com. We're on Twitter. We're at don't panic geo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. And if you would like to keep getting more informational papers about poop, (laughs) You can support us and keep the poop coming. It's on Patreon, patreon.com slash don't panic geo. And even though plumbers wonder how we get it all out of our systems when they hear (laughs) us say it, 
Until next week, remember, <laughs> don't panic. It's not an exact science. <laughs> Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. <laughs>